to God. The, the relationship that sin created, or, or severed, rather, the, the gulf that came between sin and God, or be, from sin between God and man, Christ came to restore that. Paul's also talked about how Christ transforms the, the sinner to be more like Christ, so that we are restored to that image that we're to bear of God, because Christ is the perfect image of God. Over the past couple of weeks in this study, we've looked at the first seven verses of chapter 2. We, we were instructed last week that as Christians, we are to fixate upon Jesus Christ. This morning now, we're, we're continuing our series. We're, we're picking up in verse 8. If you've turned to Colossians 2 in your Bibles already, I ask you to follow along as I read where we left off. Picking up in verse 8. See to it, Paul writes, that, that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tr tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you have also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Last week, if you were with us, we had the, the first whiff in this letter that, that the Colossian church might be facing a danger from false teaching that they might be risking succumbing to that which presented itself as truth but really is false. Well, this week Paul makes it clear that there is a danger. He starts out there, see to it. In other words, he, he's writing, watch out. There, there's a problem. There's people lurking here in the city that they're trying to get you to accept something that's not true. Paul calls that philosophy and empty deception. He calls it tradition of men. He calls it elementary principles of the world. Frankly, we, we could spend time looking at each of those phrases and see Paul's got some little different nuances in, in those ideas. There's different kinds of false ideas being presented. But, but I think it's more helpful if we just put Paul's idea into words of today. What, what Paul is saying, watch out. There's people there trying to pass off false worldviews. They're giving you false ways of looking at the world and trying to convince you these worldviews are valid. Well, unless you're living under a rock, you know we face the same problem. We have false worldviews all around us. The specifics are different. That The names that have been assigned to the ideas are different. But the overall problem is the same. In fact... It's the problem of false worldviews is what we've been dealing with on our spiritual family nights through this winter. If you've been joining us we, on our family nights, we've been dealing with developing and applying a biblical worldview in a woke world. Well, the whole idea of the woke world is there's false worldviews being presented. 
the danger of false worldviews is, is just as, as prevalent in our lives as, as it was for the Colossians. It's very real. It's all around us. That's why the text we're looking at this morning is as needful now as it was in the days Paul wrote it. The, the verses that we read just a couple of minutes ago, they're, they're packed full of, of theological gems. In, in fact, they're so full I was tempted to just slow down and, and, and spend weeks looking at each of the ideas. We, we could really spend several weeks looking at the great theological truths that, that I read in the verses here. But that's not why Paul embedded these theological gems. It wasn't so that we could look at at each one and spend time understanding it thoroughly because while it may appear in our English that we looked at a number of different ideas, disparate ideas, separate sentences, in the original it's clear that Paul links all this together in, in one main thought. He's not giving us a bunch of theological explanations. What he's doing is he's throwing us a whole pile of theological gems. He's, he's stacking them up and wants us to look at all the glittering of this theological pile that's here. Because together they demonstrate one fundamental idea. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Remember last week I said we were fixing on Christ. Paul's building on the idea now. Let me say again, or you read it on the screen behind me. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. That is what Paul wants us to do this morning. He's shown us that we need to fixate on Christ. So I want to focus on this idea this morning. My, my goal is to let Paul help us fixate on Christ. To, to do that, what I want to do this morning is just pull out five of the largest theological gems that are stacked in this pile. You could you know, think um, a, a pile of gold or something there, or maybe, what was it, Scrooge McDuck, the one that had the, the whole vault full of, of riches? Think of Scrooge with his vault looking in, and we're going to pull out five of the, the most glittering gems that we can see. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. The first theological gemstone that, that we're going to grab hold of this morning is laying there in verse 9. Christ is fully God. Grab that gem. Christ is fully God. That's a statement that, that we make quite often as believers, don't we? It, it's a fundamental idea to our Christian faith. Jesus is fully God and fully man. I expect every single person here who, who's been around church any length of time, if you're a believer, you can say this statement and probably have said it. Christ is fully man and fully God. But do we stop and think about what it means for Christ to be fully God? In our universe where we live, we can separate our entire universe into deity and everything else. There's either the creator or the creation. In some sense, the creator is outside our universe even, but he, he dwells within our universe completely, fills it, but we can distinguish the creator and creation. There really are only two options. God, non-God. And then we have Jesus. Jesus Christ is the only one that bridges 
this gap. It's not hard for us to conceive of a man walking the earth. We say Jesus is fully God, fully man. It's not hard to conceive of that. We look around, we see men walking all over the place. We, we understand that. It's a man being part of the creation, not shocking. It's entirely beyond our experience to conceive of that man also being deity. But Jesus is fully God. He is everything essential to the fullness of deity. In his bodily form, Paul brings that out in his bodily form, the man who walked this earth, the, the man who's now risen from the dead, the man who is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, that man is the fullest of deity. Deity has a permanent dwelling within him. Let's be honest, we, we cannot fully comprehend this idea. But, but full comprehension is not Paul's point in verse 9. His point is that Christ alone can make this claim. Nothing else can compete. Christ stands alone. Why would we look anywhere else for wisdom? Wisdom comes from God. Why would we look anywhere else for hope? Hope comes from God. Why would we look for joy anywhere else? Joy can come only from God. Paul is saying, gaze at Christ. He alone is God. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Christ is fully God. Gaze on that theological gem. Keep it before you. Let that glitter fill your eyes. Christ alone is God. Let's grab our next gem out of the pile. We find in verse 10, Christ is already everything we need. I couldn't think of a good fancy way of saying it, but Christ already is everything we need. He is that already. Paul, Paul does a wordplay in, in verses 9 and 10 in the Greek that, that's lost in, in many of our English translations. The New American Standard, the King James Version, those in particular lose the, the wordplay he's making. The, the beginning of verse 10, we have translated New American Standard as, as in him being made complete, or you have been made complete. That, that's an accurate translation, but it loses an important verbal link between these two verses. The English Standard Version, the ESV, makes a good attempt to bring it out in English. The English Standard translates verse 9 as, In him the whole fullness of deity lives. And then translates verse 10, You have been filled. That, that similarity there between fullness and filled, that, that kind of represents the verbal link that the Greek has. Paul does something very similar when he points out the one who has the fullness of deity, that one with the fullness has filled us through our union in him. Remember, Paul's writing this letter to this church in Colossae. He, he's writing to believer. He, he's assuming that the readers of this letter have saving faith already. Now, I know that may not be true here today. As, as I look around in a room this size with, with people here, it may not be true. You're only filled by Christ if you're in him. As these verses repeat multiple times, verse 9, in him. Verse 10, in him. Verse 11, in him. You're only filled if you're in him. 
We've received everything that we need if we are in him. Well, you're, you're only in him if you believe the gospel message of Jesus Christ. If you believe that you are a sinner who have offended a holy God, and for that reason, because of your sin, you deserve all eternity being punished for that sin in a place called hell, a place of eternal damnation, a place of no hope, because that's what your sin deserves. You're only in Christ if you believe that, but then you also add to that the belief that God, being a loving God, sent his son to die in your place. And that Christ, because he is fully God and fully man, was the one who could do that. He could die on your behalf. And you believe that he did that, not just that he could, but that he did for you. And that you've asked God to accept his sacrifice on your behalf. If you have not believed that today, talk to me after the service. Send me an email this week. Let me share with you how you can be in him. Because Paul's writing to people who he assumes are in him, are in Christ. Coming back to the point that Paul really is making here in verse 10, he says, in Christ, in him, we have been made complete. Have been made complete. It's already an accomplished truth. Paul says, if you are one of these people that believed in Christ, you are in him. Nothing remains. We've received everything that we need. We're already filled up with everything that completes us. Well, if that's the case, why would we listen to worldviews that, that offer us other things when we're already completely filled with everything we need? One of the weird things about me, at least according to, to my wife, and she's probably not wrong, she, she assesses things pretty accurately most time, but one of the things that she says is weird about me is I prefer the main course over dessert. I'd much rather have a third helping of whatever the main dish is than, than having the, the, the large piece of whatever dessert's offered afterwards. She has pronounced numerous times, that makes me weird. It's not unusual for me to pass up the dessert because I am already full, completely stuffed with the main course of foods. Well, that's a little bit the idea that Paul has here. All sorts of tempting ideas may float around with us, being like that, that sugar on the dessert that's being offered. Some of the ideas may appeal to our desire. Maybe our desire for recognition, our desire for sophistication. Maybe they appeal to our logic. Maybe they hit our emotional heartstring in some fashion. There's all these ideas floating around with their appeals. Yet we find we don't want to spend any time digging into these other ideas if we recognize that we already have everything in Christ. If we recognize Christ gives us everything we need, as he says in 2 Peter, for life and godliness. Why do we want anything else when we have everything we need in Christ? Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Christ is already everything we need. That, that's the second theological gem that, that should arrest our attention. In, in verses 11 and 12, we can reach into the pile again and find a, a third idea, a third gem here, Christ. Christ is the true end of proper religion. The true end of proper religion. Here, Paul suddenly brings up circumcision. It, it really comes out of the blue in the verse. Circumcision uh, as you may well know, was 
really the defining element of Jewish religion. Now, we have to speculate a little bit here because Paul doesn't directly say, but most likely the false teachers in Colossae were, were emphasizing the importance of circumcision and, and somehow probably linking it to Christian faith. We, we know that many of the places Paul went, he had to deal with the issue where there were people teaching you needed to believe in Christ and be circumcised for full salvation. He, he dealt with that many other places he went, so it's not surprising to think he might have found in Colossae as well. Now, to us, this may seem slightly crazy, but that's because we live in different time. We live in different place. We live in different era. Our worldviews are different than the worldviews of the people back then. Back at that time, it did not seem at all crazy to think that Christian faith that most Gentiles saw as really a, a, an aspect of Judaism. It came out of Judaism. They saw it as tied into Judaism. Judaism is defined by circumcision. It was not at all crazy to think that a religion that's tied to Judaism needs the sign of Judaism. It made sense. It's really not much different today, if you think about it. And let me try and bring in to, to the idea that we anticipate that an immigrant who comes and lives in America will somehow can, or will, will likely continue to reflect some of the cultural thinking of their ethnicity. We, we assume that, that they will do that. We, we expect that, that they will continue to appreciate all their foods of, of, that were part of their ethnic heritage. We assume that, that some of the thinking of, of their ethnicity will be the way they look at things. We even expect that if a person who's not part of that ethnicity marries into an immigrant family, you can pick on Andy back there who, who kind of did that, married into an immigrant family, we'd expect that there'd be some recognition and appreciation for some of those cultural things. We understand that, right? It's normal. Well, that's a little bit like what's going on here. Of course, the, the reason that we need to speculate about exactly what Paul's going on is he doesn't spend time dealing with the error in the false teaching. Rather, instead, he focuses on solution. The solution, Christ. The true end, or, or the goal, if you will, of all proper religion is to restore the relationship of the creatures with their creator. That is the end of religion. That's the goal. That's the purpose. And at some level, even the false religions of the world have that, that goal, except that they've replaced the, the true creator God with some false substitute God. Still, the, the goal is to somehow link the worshiper to that substitute God. In fact, it seems that, that to some extent that the further the substitute God is from the, the true God, the, the more elaborate the religious activities are that have been in, invented to bridge the gap. Studying the religions of the world is, is one of the saddest endeavors really you can undertake is, as you see the level of efforts that people will, will expand trying to progress in their so-called faith. Well, look at what Paul writes. Christ. Christ. Christ is the only link possible. Christ alone restores the, the, the relationship that sin's fractured. We, we don't need elaborate efforts. We need Christ. And to have Christ requires only faith. That is the idea that Paul is making. That's the point he, he's emphasizing with phrases like, 
circumcision made without hands, or raised up with him through faith. Paul is talking that all we need is Christ and it's a spiritual connection. We don't have to do anything. Christ, Christ is the end of all proper religion. And it's not a list of religious efforts, it's Christ. Not even a single religious action is required. Faith in Christ alone is where religion is meant to take us. That is the theological gem that's worth gazing on. When other religious ideas are proposed, Paul says, don't look at those, look at Christ. 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 Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Christ is the true end of proper religion. Let's go back to our theological pile again. If we look at verses 13 and 14, we, we find another sparkling gem. Christ, again. Christ is the full payment for all our sin debt. The full payment. Here we have the amazing truth. When you were dead in your transgresses, etc., etc., he made you alive together with him. Paul writes a lot of verses in Ephesians chapter 2 explaining this concept. When you were dead, he made you alive. Paul wrote the book of Romans, the most doctrinal, rich book in the Bible, and the whole chunk of that book is about when you were dead, he made you alive. He fleshes out how does that happen? How does it come about? Essentially, bottom line is Christ died to pay for sin debt. He died for us. As I said earlier, he died doing what we could not do for ourselves. This is a great theological truth. It's one of, that's worthy of being restated over and over again. Here, however, rather than, than stating the truth, what Paul does is he gives us the most incredible visual picture rather than a detailed explanation. We have the detailed explanation in other places. Here he gives us a picture. Let's try to create this picture in our mind. Think of a picture. You have the cross laying there on the ground. You have Christ being stretched out on, on that cross, and then the nails are being driven into his hands and into his feet. You, you hear the, the, the grunts of agony as, as that cross then is lifted vertical and dropped into the hole. And there you see Christ hanging on the cross. Your eyes are grabbed by the blood that's dripping off his elbow. And, and as you look at that, your, your eyes travel up his arm to where the nail that's the source of that blood is located. And you're shocked to see that in his hand, he's got a piece of paper clutched. A, a piece of paper that the nail goes right through as, as it's stuck to the, the cross as, with his hand is holding that paper and the nail drives through both. You wonder, what paper would be so important that he's holding it while he's being killed on the cross. You, you can't see it because it's clutched in his hand, but, but eventually Jesus dies, and then his body is taken down from the cross. Now in his lifeless hands, that, that paper pops free. And gust of wind grabs and blows it right to your feet. And you look down, and you're shocked to see what it says. That paper is an IOU to God. It's a certificate of debt with your name written on it. 
The, the certificate says that, that we owe God our life for failure to live perfectly righteous. Under the penalty clause of the certificate of debt, it says that failure on our part requires eternal damnation. Furthermore, we, we've signed the certificate. It's legally binding. It is a certificate of debt. Having discovered this signed document now, we're, we're terrified. We, we know there's no escaping. In fact, the very fact that the wind blew it to our feet tells us that this debt is, is pursuing us, is chasing us. It's hostile to us, Paul says in verse 14. According to the paper, our life is forfeit before holy God. We, we begin to shake as, as we comprehend this paper. But then we also wonder, why was it clutched in, in Jesus' hand at the moment that he was crucified? So we look at it again, hoping that, that maybe we misread something. We, we have not. But incredibly, now we, we notice something that we missed a moment ago. We, we notice that, that the blood that soaked into the page that we were looking past because we were trying to read what was on the page, the blood itself has formed words. And if, as we look at the blood, we see that as the blood ran across the paper, while Jesus was gripping on the cross and it was flung out from his hands, that blood formed the words, paid in full. That's the picture that Paul is casting in our minds. How is it that we've been forgiven all our transgresses? He says, having canceled out their certificate of debt, consisting of, of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he, Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There are worldviews swirling all around us that, that claim that we need to continually work toward making past wrongs right because we've inherited guilt. Folks, we are guilty beyond anything any of those false worldviews can say. We didn't just inherit guilt, we are guilty. There are worldviews that claim that, that we can never find forgiveness because our particular sin was too vile. Well, in a sense, they're right because we can never earn our forgiveness. Our sin is far too vile for that. There are worldviews that claim no matter what we do, we must always do more. And it was true if it was left to us. But Paul's answer to every one of those false worldview type claims is the same. Christ already did it. Look at Christ as his answer. Paul would just say, whatever views present, you have inherited guilt, you have to atone for. He says, no, look at Christ. You have particular sin that's too vile to be forgiven. He says, no, look at Christ. You have to do more than you've done. He says, no, look at Christ. Christ has done it. Whatever it was that you've done, it was nailed to the cross. Christ is the full payment for all our sin debt. Fixating on Christ alone, it keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Christ is the full payment for all sin debt. What a theological gem to find in this pile that's already full of great theological gems. And yet there's another one that will cause us to fixate on Christ. Lastly, Paul adds in verse 15, Christ is already victorious over every angelic being. 
He is already victorious over every angelic being. As we discussed when they first came up back in chapter 1, verse 16, angels and demons, the, the good and the evil side of angelic beings, seem as if they have always been a continual fascination for humanity. We wonder about these things. We know just a little bit about angels and then evil angels, we call them demons, these angelic beings. We, we know they're quite different from us. We know that both angels and demons are far more powerful than us. Yet we know little more than that about them. We know that angels serve God and demons oppose God. But we know so little and it seems that many people are not content with the limitation of our knowledge. So angels and demons become objects of endless speculation. I would say from the frivolous speculations to the downright serious occultic type speculations. Now, if you're wondering why I talk about angelic being, that really is what Paul's referring to in verse 15 when he says rulers and authorities. He used those words earlier. They're specific words that reference the angelic realm. Apparently, much like today, there were people speculating about the angelic realm in Colossae as well. And notice Paul doesn't, again, write anything directly about the speculation, he doesn't refute whatever the speculative ideas were that were swirling around the city. He already mentioned in verse 10 that Christ is head over all these beings. Now Paul's only response once more is Christ. Yeah, there's lots of ideas being proposed out there. Christ. Christ is greater than all angelic beings. No matter how powerful some might suggest they are, regardless of the attention that others might want to claim they deserve his simple answer is why 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 look at them christ is victorious over them in other words why concern yourself with angelic beings especially demons when you can fixate on the one who is victorious paul uses the roman custom of the day that would have been very familiar to his initial readers rome would reward a victorious general with, with a victory parade. The general would be allowed to come into the major city as the victorious general, and he'd lead this parade, and the parade was made up of, of prisoners in chains, those that he had conquered. And the citizens, as he walked in, then would hail the victor, granting him great honor for the victory that he had. God, Paul writes, has already given Christ a victory parade. Christ has already led his captives in change. Why would you speculate about the prisoners when you have the victor you can hail? Why indeed? Why would we get drawn into not only supernatural speculation, but any kind of speculation that, that takes us away from a fixation on Christ? Christ is already victorious. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Christ is already victorious over every angelic being. That is the fifth gem that we can pull out of this glittering pile of, of gems. As I said at the outset, it is probable that most of us fall into the category of those who have attempted practical jokes at, at one time or another. So we know that, that jokes must have some semblance, some appearance of, of reality for them to work. Hopefully, if we 
had a joke against mom. It was a harmless variety because it is Mother's Day. We don't want to have to go and ask forgiveness for really nasty things we did in the past. But there has to be this appearance of reasonableness for a joke to work. Well, the same is true for a false worldview. They, they have to have the appearance of reasonableness. They have to seem to make sense, at least initially. Yet they're false. That's why we call them false worldviews. The question is, how can we avoid falling for a false worldview like we might have at times fallen for practical jokes ourselves? How can we not fall for what looks like it's truth when it isn't? Christ. That's the answer. Christ. Fixate on Christ. That is the solution. That is the solution Paul gives that says it will keep us from falling for any false worldview. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Last week I asked, are you fixated on Christ? This week I asked again, are you fixated on Christ? If not, then you are open to all the worldviews that are swirling around us. All the false ideas that are being promoted by our society. If you are not fixated on Christ, you are susceptible. Christ alone can protect you from falling for that which is false. Fixate on him. Fixating on Christ alone keeps us from falling for any false worldview. Let's pray. Father, this morning our prayer is that you would indeed help us to fixate on our glorious Savior. Father, we've seen just a quick record of a number of glorious theological truths that we should fixate on, our minds should dwell upon and, and be overwhelmed with awesomeness that's represented by each and every one of them. Ideas that go beyond our comprehension, causing our minds to burst in wonder, burst in, in awe, burst in praise for you. As we joyfully magnify Jesus Christ, our glorious Savior. Father, we do live in a world that's trying to do everything it can to distract us from Christ, to pull us from him and to replace truth with error. Truth with that which is false. Father, protect us by causing us to focus on Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.